I think there's a, there's a humility in most entrepreneurs that I would meet and I think most of them actually have a fear of failure rather than this great anticipation of success when they start off in business and certainly when I started off in Snap it was 100% a fear of failure that actually drove me on. The Architects of Business on Joe in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland. From the rugby pitch to the field of business, Mick Carney has had an action-packed career bringing tried and tested business models to the Irish market. This is the Architects of Business, Joe's weekly series of interviews with leading business people in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. I'm Ty Genreich and today we'll hear from Mick Carney, a former Ireland rugby team manager and entrepreneur who brought snap printing and home instead senior care to Ireland. Mick's worked with some of the top names in Irish rugby and he sees valuable lessons from sport for business. I look at, say, Joe Schmidt and I look at, at his success uh, with the Irish team, which has been absolutely phenomenal. And people have often asked me, well, what, why has Joe been so, so successful? Apart from his very high intelligence and great knowledge of rugby, I think the fact that he actually works harder than everybody else is a huge thing. Mick left Ireland for Australia when his playing career ended. But it was family rather than fortune that brought him home to run Snap Printing. My wife is one of the eldest of 12 children. Uh, we pretty well had made our decision to go back to Queensland and open up the first Snap franchise on the Gold Coast. And my wife was telling her father that we'd made the decision that we were going to go back and he started to cry. And on that based on that decision, we actually stayed at home. It was Mick's job to sell the franchise to other entrepreneurs, which he did with some reverse psychology. I would almost try and put them off buying the franchise rather than actually encourage them to buy. Because Is this reverse psychology? It's a little bit of reverse psychology, but it's also, I think, being reality, a reality as well, because when you get into business for yourself, it's completely different to going into a job Monday to Friday. Today we'll hear about Mick's hard times, but in business, as on the field, you've got to keep going. Mick, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us today. Uh, it's not often we have someone in the chair like you who's excelled so much in, in kind of two different fields, in, in, in elite sport and in business. And you're the, kind of the perfect person to ask what the parallels between those two worlds are. Um, what have you seen in your time? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big opening question. <laughs> so it is. Uh, I've obviously seen a number of parallels. <coughs> um, haven't been, I suppose, an entrepreneur for for many, many years, going back to 1984 and continuing on until uh, I effectively got involved with the rugby team, which back in 2012. And I think probably the comparison that I would see is that I think the attention to detail is, is one thing that I really, really struck me. Um, I think it's it's probably an error that, that a lot of business people make maybe when they're making decisions to to, to, uh, to get involved in a business or buy a business. They, they don't actually do their, their due diligence. Um, I think due diligence is a massive part of, of what, what coaches do at a very senior level, as in, you know, the Joe Schmitz of this world. Um, and like Joe's int- attention to detail, it, it is legendary. Um, and it's absolutely um, as good as people say it is. Um, obviously, experience, experience that firsthand over a period of five years. Um, it was quite extraordinary in that there's no stone left unturned uh, in any aspect of the preparation. And, you know, that includes preparation both on the pitch and off the pitch. Um, I know one of the earlier meetings that Joe had, he got the players together 
and they came up with a with a, with a terminology that they felt encompassed what they actually uh, wanted to be and, and wanted to become and that was a basic excellence everyone every time and I think that maybe sums it up quite well in that everybody had to be excellent uh, at what they did both in terms of their preparation in terms of their hydration in terms of their sleep in terms of their performance on the pitch and I honestly think that business could learn an awful lot from that I think you know one of one of business's failings I think is that there is sometimes a lack of that attention to detail um, and that comes uh, through I think in terms of I think in particular in terms of maybe managing uh, a multitude of people and, and giving them you know honest feedback and giving them I suppose the tools to help make them successful that you know, people people take on, you know, employees and they don't actually uh, give them the time and effort to actually make them better employees. And there isn't that consistent feedback, uh, consistent level of improvement that you actually need. In the way that you have on a, on a sports team. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think every... Every month, every every three months, every six months, I think that the game is evolving and you have to keep up with that. So the coaches are working extremely hard at looking at trends. Um, I think it's another thing that coaches are really, really good at. They, they actually study the opposition massively. It's not something that would be that common in business that you would study um, your opposition in absolutely minute detail or as much as you actually can. I mean, with, with, with video analysis now and all matches being televised around the world, there's no secrets. But at the same time, I remember when Joe came in initially, um, uh, traditionally uh, there would have been maybe five or six players picked out of the opposition and there would have been maybe a three or four minute video done on them. Uh, When Joe came in, Joe insisted on uh, not only the starting 15 of the opposition be... Uh, be be monitored but also their bench and also maybe any potential players that might come into the team over the course of the year so it added a lot of extra (coughs) work into the the video analysis but it meant that our players were incredibly well prepared uh, in terms of you know who they were marking and what they would expect from their opposition. So listen before you kind of transition because you were a player once yourself and um, sadly to, to bow out at a relatively young age uh, before you kind of made that transition into the world of business, um, what was it like as a, as a as a sportsman? Was was a career in business always at the back of your mind as the kind of the thing to do post post retirement? Uh, not not really. I mean, <coughs> I, I do think that that uh, that life kind of. Um it throws up a lot of challenges and it, cho- it throws up an awful lot of, of opportunities as well. And I look back at my time. I was in Castlenock College for, for six years. I came from a farming background. Um, there was, I always expected, to be honest with you, and it was expected of me that I would go and I would work in the, in the family business, cattle dealing and farming, uh, after I left school. I did that um, pretty well straight away. Went to ag college for a year and then went back to the farm um, met the love of my life, Eugenie, when I was 21 years of age and um, got married when we were 20. I was 24, she was 23 or 24, 25. And within a year, we had our first uh, wedding anniversary in Perth in, in Western Australia. And how that came about basically was that, that, that uh, and it's not, I don't think it's that unusual, I think, with fathers and eldest sons and when land and farms are, are, are involved, uh, we had, a, I suppose, We'd call it maybe a misunderstanding, but it was probably a little bit more serious than that. So we decided really that there was no future really (coughs) staying at home. And we emigrated to Perth in Western Australia. Uh, My wife is a nurse, so she uh, got a job in Royal Perth Hospital pretty well straight away. 
I had no real qualification, landed up in a big, landed in a big city, stayed in a big city for the first time, and I really did not know what to do. Um, I got involved in coaching uh, with a team called Cottesloe Rugby Club and met a man called Paddy Thompson, who was from Mount Melican County Leash. Paddy happened to be the CEO of Snap Printing in Australia at the time. Paddy offered me a job as a trainee printer right down at the bottom of the scale. Um, I worked my way up to kind of centre manager level pretty quickly. Um, they were the biggest franchise in Australia uh, from a print point of view. And then in, in a very kind of funny kind of way, Paddy then offered me to buy a franchise in either Queensland or come back to Ireland and, uh, and buy the master franchise for Ireland, which was obviously a massive opportunity. But Ireland back in 1984 was a complete basket case in that interest rates were 16, 17%. Unemployment was the same. Ireland was on its knees. And Paddy actually came home to look at the uh, opportunity, came back to Perth, and he said to me, Mick, he said, don't touch it. He said, do not go near it, OK? So we then came home for a family wedding in March 1984. And uh, uh, my wife is one of the eldest of 12 children. And uh, we pretty well had made our decision to go back to Queensland and open up the first Snap franchise on the Gold Coast. And my wife was telling her father that we'd made the decision that we were going to go back. And he started to cry. And on that basis, on that decision, we actually stayed at home. So, so it, was the, it was the draw of family brought you back, like it so was many the draw of family, exactly. And like you know, you talk about business planning, and you talk about due diligence, and you talk about all of these things. And sometimes it's just you make emotional decisions, and that was one hundred percent an emotional decision. Um, we opened up Snap in, in June nineteen eighty four, and it never really looked back. To be honest with you, we were profitable within the first two or three months. And it grew very rapidly to become Ireland's leading print and design group. And thankfully, it's still going strong today. Was it offering something different in, in, in the Ireland of the time? You talk about 1984, interest rates were out of control, unemployment was <coughs> probably a, as high as, a, as it's ever been mm. since the, the birth of the state. Mm. Uh, you know, what kind of, what was Snap's offer back then? Uh, Paddy had a great saying that he, he, he had three things and, and, and the letters were ISQ, image, service and quality. And he said, if you actually have a good image, if you have a good service and you have good quality, he said, you'd be successful no matter what you do. Um, I do think that uh, the, the, the service that we gave, like I had this, I suppose, unbelievable fear of failure, really. And I think it's another maybe common trait in entrepreneurs that they don't actually... I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a humility in most entrepreneurs that I would meet and I think most of them actually have a fear of failure rather than this great anticipation of success when they start off in business and certainly when I started off in Snap it was 100% a fear of failure that actually drove me on uh, I worked really hard at it I had some very good contacts um, remember in particular uh, Robbie Kelleher from Davy Stockbrokers gave me a great turn earlier on and all I could think of was, well, that pays my rent now for for this month or whatever. And it was literally going from day to day, week to week. Uh, and suddenly it started to steamroll and we got more customers and um, I used my contacts well. But I think very much, you know, people buy off people at the end of the day. And I think if you're, I don't necessarily think you have to be a good salesperson, but I think if you're a good networker, if you're a good relationship person, if you can talk to people, if you, if you I think if you care about people, I think you can actually uh, do very well in business. You don't have to be, a, you know, a smart aleck, a smart salesperson to, to get ahead. And you've got networks like, like this one, uh, the, the EY Entrepreneur of the Year, and you've also got this, the sporting network that uh, you will have uh, built up around yourself. Was that particularly uh, advantageous? Very, very helpful, yeah. Like, I, I joined uh, Lansdowne uh, pretty well straight after after school and uh, lucky enough to, to play for the senior team there for, for three or four years. 
and made a lot of friends and you know it's funny you think you make a lot of your friends probably through boarding school and and, and, and all that but most of my friends the vast majority of them came through Lansdowne and that network was certainly extremely supportive and, and helpful to me uh, especially when I was starting off um, I'm now a trustee of the club so I go back there on a very regular basis uh, all my friends from 30 years ago are still all my friends today which is which is great and um, I must say there's a fantastic I think network of people um, in, in I think in most rugby clubs but I think in particular down in Lansdowne So how did you start to shall we say spread the branches of, of, of Snap around the country I mean talk to me about the, the journey from the first to the second to maybe the third fourth mm. and fifth Initially it was mainly through kind of family and friends funnily enough um, I think my, my second franchise was my brother Paul and my third franchise was uh, a guy called John Dawson from Lansdowne who worked with me for a while I think the fourth might have been somebody else who worked with me uh, the fifth might have been another brother so it's, it's it's quite interesting really I think when I look back on it and I look at say the the uh, <coughs> the situation at home and the family business and all that and uh, I think it's it probably quite ironic that, that, that I ended up bringing a franchise back to Ireland and two of my brothers and one of my sisters actually got involved as franchisees and all did very well out of So it. that was how you built it it wasn't that you started uh, spreading out your own network and then maybe franchising at a later stage it was the second, third and fourth They were franchised straight all away All franchised yeah, straight away yeah. I mean the first one was really successful and I think that's one of the I, I think it's one of the, the, the key kind of things of a franchise is that that number one pilot operation has to be successful It's got to be, yeah and if that doesn't work, well, then it's very difficult to go out and sell it to other people. So uh, the one in originally in Andrew Street and then moved to Dane Street, that was a really successful snap um, and was in the top kind of two or three between Ireland and Australia in terms of revenues and, and profitability. So it worked really well very, very quickly. Um, so I didn't have any difficulty in actually selling the concept to others. But the key moment, I think, probably was when uh, in about 1990, 91, um, I knew that there was a big network out there to be tapped into and that we could franchise this way more than what I was doing. But I was actually so busy in my own operation in, in Dame Street that it was very difficult for me to, to I suppose, do, 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 the do both jobs. Yeah. So I um, came across a guy called Ed Murphy. Uh, Ed, a good Wexford man, and Ed was coming back from America. And I met Ed one day uh, and we spoke for about three or four hours about sport and thing, and we just gelled. We actually just... Uh, create this kind of incredible bond straight away I don't know whether it's ever happened to you that you meet somebody and suddenly you feel you know you've met somebody who's going to be a friend for life mm-hmm. and it's actually turned out that way so um, Ed is uh, this year my partner for what 26 years uh, we've been partners uh, through a lot of ups and downs lots of uh, ins and outs it hasn't all been one way uh, but still fantastic friends we've we've never fallen out even though we've had lots of arguments but I would I would, I would definitely give Ed you know the vast majority of the credit for the success of the rollout of of uh, of Snap back in the kind of late nineties when things were beginning to take off. What was your your sales pitch to potential franchisees? Because I mean, the reason I ask that is that sometimes when it comes to people looking to mm. to get into a business, you know, you got the franchise. It's like the off the shelf model. You're buying into a brand name, into a business model, mm. into an approach. But I guess there are different deals are structured in different ways and some people will criticise franchising saying you know you're just buying the right to be a store manager Mm. and sending loads of your profits off to to HQ Mm. what Mm. um, how is Snap different to that? Well I I would describe franchising as as getting into business for yourself but not by yourself number one okay so I do think that the network around you is hugely important your best sales people are the 
existing franchisees. Okay, so if, if for instance, you came in looking for a franchise for Home Instead, I would insist that you actually go around to at least 10 of the offices and ask every question, uh, completely open book policy, and find out all about uh, whether it's Mick, whether it's Ed Murphy, whether it's other people that we've involved in the business. But we would be very open and transparent. And, and I don't think in the in the many years I've been selling franchises that I ever actually went to sell one. I've always actually uh, explained the opportunity. I've looked, at, I've given them a look at the P&L. I've shown them and, sh- and given them proof of what people could do in, in year one, two, three, four and five. Uh, I've then explained to them how difficult it's going to be. And actually, I would almost try and put them off buying the franchise rather than actually encourage them to buy. Because Is this reverse psychology? It's a little bit of reverse psychology, but it's also, I think, being reality, uh, a reality as well. Because when you get into business for yourself, it's completely different. Uh, to going into a job Monday to Friday. I think you have to work a huge amount of hours. There's the pressure. There's the pressure on the family. Uh, we would always insist that we, we would meet the partner if, if that person has a partner and explain, you know, you're not going to be seeing as much as him or her as you have over the last uh, year or two. Uh, they're going to have to work very hard. There's going to be financial pressure. Uh, you're not going to make money in your first year. So you need enough uh, capital to get you get through that. And hopefully then in the second year, you'll make a little bit of money. But it, it is not a it's not a quick fix. I think, you know, getting into any business, I think it's it's. It's a hard slog. And, and, it's and, a hard slog. And you, you've it been is. through it as well. Mm, it's I mean, a hard slog. And yeah, you need to be brave, I think. I really think you need to be brave. And I've, I've great admiration for people who actually take that plunge into business because it's, it's very much a different sort of, of pressure to, to working in a nine-to-five job. And you talked there <coughs> earlier about all the highs, highs and lows that you went mm. through, including with, with, your, with your business partner. Mm. Um, I mean, talk to us about some of those, those low points and, 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 and how you got through them. Interesting. We got we got through them uh, with a lot of difficulty, uh, Tyg, to be honest with you. And like there was one one in particular back in the kind of late 1990s, uh, to time of the dot com boom, we got involved in a dot com business called PrintOrigin.com. We actually uh, invested uh, in a well in excess of a million euros, at a million pounds actually at the time ourselves into it, and then we we raised some money from private investors as well. Um, we ended up it, what it was it was a print portal where people could come in and get quotes and buy print from one central portal okay and we had we had great ambition we were we were going to go to Europe we were going to go to America and this is the way the dot com thing worked mm. back then I'm not sure you're, you're probably a little bit too young to remember it but you know there was a time when a, a company called Baltimore Technologies uh, was worth more than Bank of Ireland and Bank of Ireland had a billion pounds worth of profit at the time and Baltimore didn't have any revenues mm. so it was all a little bit skewed the whole thing it really was and uh, still is to a degree it, to, it, to a degree it is yeah but at least there's, there, there's, there's more uh, there's, there's more to it now I think than there yes, would have been back then more behind it but, so, um, so we, we actually ended up and we lost a very significant amount of money and we closed uh, we closed it down a, a day or two after 9-11 uh, so that was within kind of two and a half years of opening and all the money was gone and we couldn't raise any more money because the markets literally shut down after 9-11 and the world was, was, was not in a good place. So uh, myself and Ed, who was in the business with me, we, we went back into Snap. I went back into Dame Street, my tail between my legs. Ed went back to the corporate office, tail between his legs. And for the next kind of three or four years, we tried to make back what we'd lost. And it really was, we literally lost pretty well everything that we'd made in the previous 10 years and it had gone down into this black hole of, of software and, and, and dot com and we, we had to struggle to come out of it but we, we just got back on it and we, we tried to be positive about it uh, but it wasn't easy What had gone wrong? 
uh, the market had gone wrong number one we, we came very close to getting it across the line um, there was a company called Bertelsmann which are a massive German company and we had a number of meetings with them and they were on the verge of, of, of buying in a, a significant part of it and, and investing a lot of equity into it and um, we ran out of money at the end of the day like they pulled the plug around that time and we just literally ran out of money and did you well, it was a lesson it was a great lesson yeah I mean how learned. have you taken the lessons and, and applied them I, to I suppose I'd go back to maybe what I said originally about, about due diligence I don't think we did enough due diligence on it I think we were um, sometimes you can be overexcited about the opportunity and you don't look at the negative side of things and I think you always have to weigh up the negatives and the positives and I think back then we were just so uh kind of engrossed by the idea that we didn't look at any of the negatives um, and it was a lesson and I actually think we learned we learned from the lessons and, and you know I think another point I would make about, about business and about failure in particular is that um, I think everybody is prone to failure but it's, it's only a failure if you don't actually learn from it and everybody can recover from it so people can get very down in the dumps if they fail right and that's very difficult but if you learn from it I don't see it as failure um, one of the other things I did back then I remember there was about 35 or 40 private investors involved in, in, in funding Print Origin and I would say I probably knew about 32 of them so that made it maybe a little bit more difficult to, uh, more difficult. so I rang the, 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 the company who was looking after it and I said listen can you give me the names and phone numbers of all the investors and I literally locked myself away for two days and I rang every single one of them I explained the situation to them and let them know that their their money uh, was completely gone. And you know what? Apart from one person, uh, they all really appreciated the phone call. And they just said, listen, thank you very much for giving me a heads up. Hard luck. Best luck in the future. And there was no issue. There was only one person that gave me a hard time. And the thing I actually learned from that particular experience was that if you confront... Uh, if you confront the kind of reality and the harsh reality of stuff early on and you deal with it, it's actually an awful lot better than than hiding away from it. I think a lot of people can fail and next thing they just want to hide themselves away. They don't want to face people. They don't want to talk to anybody about it. They don't want to, uh, I think there's a saying, confront the brutal facts. And actually, if you do confront the brutal facts and you actually uh, deal with that stress in your life of wondering what will that person say to me when I walk down the street and meet him across the street in, in two weeks time or three weeks time if I haven't told them what's happening or what will happen if I have told them and it was completely different and to me it's one of the great kind of stress relievers is to deal with your, your problems uh, as quickly as you possibly can I'm sensing another sporting analogy here Mick mm. and it's you know when you get knocked down you just pick yourself you have to just pick yourself you up have to, and, yes. and, and yeah. go at it again absolutely I mean I think uh, the one thing that I would have learned from from observing the the rugby players over over many years is the, the the level of resilience that they have. They've got an incredible ability to bounce back up and and dust themselves down and get on to the next challenge. Um, and like sport, it's funny, it's full. The, 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 the disappointments are far more extreme in sport than they are in business. And the highs are probably far more high in sport than they are in business because you, you don't get that adrenaline rush generally in business and you don't get that severe disappointment. And your, your, your disappointments in sport are very public disappointments. And your mistakes in, in, in sport are very public disappointments. Whereas your mistakes in business or your highs or lows are actually, you know, the office, thirty people, forty people, you who great, but when it comes to sport, there could be there could be a million people that are kind mm. of uh, their <laughs> cheering mood you on, their mood, you. their mood is going to be affected <laughs> by the outcome. So it, it adds a kind of a different dynamic. Um, 
So that's an interesting part of it as yeah. well. Okay, fascinating stuff. Um, yeah. I think the other point I'd make just to your original question, I think hard work is a very underrated uh, trait in people. And, you know, I look at... I look at, say, Joe Schmidt and I look at, at his success uh, with the Irish team, which has been absolutely phenomenal, and with Leinster <coughs> going back before then. And people have often asked me, well, what, why has Joe been so, so uh, successful? And I think probably, uh, apart from his very high intelligence and great knowledge of rugby, I think the fact that he actually works harder than everybody else is a huge thing. Like, Joe will study uh, rugby, you know, 18 hours a day, um, the players that are under his guidance will know exactly where they stand with them. He won't have just looked at them in training. He, he'd have looked at every thing that they've done in the previous six weeks before they come into camp with their with their province. He look at them training. He he will be able to point out their their good points and he'll be able to point out their areas for improvement. And then he will actually coach them into improving those areas of improvement. So the the, the level of hard work and, and detail that Joe puts into actually making uh, players better players is extraordinary. Absolutely incredible insight mm. so far Mick. Uh, do stay with us because we still got to hear on the Architects business about Mick Carney stepping back from one business and launching the next. You're listening to the Architects of Business on Joe in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Visit eoy.ie to find out more about the programme and this year's finalists. Get in touch. Mail us on the Architects of Business at joe.ie. So, Mick, when did you uh, decide that it was time to kind of, you know, release the reins on on Snap and look for the next thing? Um, going back into Snap for for the three or four years after the the dot com business went bust, that was a. Uh, um, that was kind of it was it was it was tough, very tough in one way because really you were actually going backwards, and we had to go backwards in order to go forward. So we had to recover financially, uh, we had to recover psychologically a little bit because no matter what people say, when something goes wrong in business, it, it does have a, a an effect on, on on your your mind. So, but after three or four years, uh, I remember sitting down with Ed one day and said, "Come on, let's go again. There must be something else here." Uh, we were still kind of in our I, well I was in very much in my early early 50s and, and Ed was probably mid 40s and uh, we said Ed, let's go and have a look around and see what's out there so we started looking at franchises again and uh, again you know I go back to the, the, the little bit of luck uh, that or, the, or the, the large bit of luck that actually uh, sometimes uh, has to happen in order for you to, to, to get ahead uh, so we looked at a couple of franchises and then one day we got a call from the American uh, embassy, the commercial department in Dublin to say that there was a lady, Japanese lady from a company called Homestead Senior Care in town. And I remember Ed ringing me and saying, Mick, will we will we meet her? And whatever. I said, yeah, yeah, listen, why not? Whenever. And we met her and she was a whirlwind is all I can say. Uh, myself and Ed had no idea about home care. And I'm telling you, we had no idea. Talk about uh, experience in business, whatever. This was an area that we literally did not know the first thing about. So <clears throat> we got on a plane to Omaha in Nebraska. I'd say a week later. We were so excited by what she had to tell us that we got on the plane to Nebraska about a week later. And uh, on St. Patrick's Day 2005, we signed a master franchise agreement for Ireland. And we still didn't know an awful lot about the business, to be honest with you. We did some training in in, in Omaha. Uh, we had no idea really how the business here operated. Uh, there was a, mainly been operated by, I suppose, through the, the, the black economy was 
probably the main kind of way people got their caregiver um, agency basis. The caregiver turned up the door. The caregiver got paid directly by the by the person. There was no insurance. Uh, there was no guard of vetting. Um, there was no real vetting of the caregiver. All of that type of stuff. Well, tell us a bit more about you know what mm. you had to learn about mm. what home care or home and stays did and does well well what what it does it, we look after older people at home okay in order to make them uh, comfortable uh, more independent uh, healthier and to actually just keep them um, i think keep them happier for as long as as we possibly can um the options back then were really kind of nursing home or family looking after them or, you know, a very small selection of maybe caregivers coming through the HSE or whatever. And we came in and I think we professionalised business. We we spawned a huge number of competitors, which is which is interesting. Um, complimentary almost. It's complim- it was complimentary. And, you know, it was a little bit like snapping that it started off and the first one was really successful. And then we, it's funny, we found three really good franchisees within a year of opening the first one. Normally you'd have to run a pilot for, for 12 months. And with, with, with this, we actually found three brilliant franchisees all together. They all went training together in Omaha in March of 2006. So less than about nine months after we opened. And they came back and they set up straight away and they were really successful. And it it kind of, it just went on from there, Tig. I mean, a massive need for it, obviously. Uh, the uh, population uh, is ageing. Uh, the over 75s are, are kind of going to double, I think, over the next 10 years. So there is a massive need for home care. Um, and I think Homestead do a, genuinely do a fantastic job. We try and match up the caregiver to the needs of the older person. We try and match their personality so that if, for instance, we, we, we have a, a client and they're interested in, in the theatre, we try and get a caregiver who might be interested in theatre. So it's very much, a, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a task orientated service. It's very much a companionship um, looking after the person themselves rather than just looking after the home. How, how does it work though? Because I mean I, I think most people can understand the concept of a, of a printing mm. business franchise and basically yes. open a shop and you've got mm. all the branded materials and you kind of say we'll sort out your, your imaging needs. Okay. When it comes to setting up this network of, 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 of carers yes. how does your uh, business model look getting, kind of getting caregivers is a massive it's a massive challenge because I would say that out of every 10 caregivers that apply for a job we, we actually employ about maybe half of them. Um, so with that half, we bring them in. We give them uh, uh, 20 hours solid training before they go anywhere. Uh, so they need to get their their, their FETAC levels uh, up over, over time as well. So we would never put a caregiver in with an older person who didn't have the qualifications to do and cover the needs of that particular older person. Uh, so for instance, if, if we have a client that has... Um, um, you know, mid-range Alzheimer, for instance, or dementia. Well, then we would make we would ensure that the caregiver going into that client would be uh, would be well versed and well educated in the needs of that particular person. So. We employ the caregivers, we train the caregivers, uh, we then go out and we introduce the caregivers. Uh, we have nurses in all our offices that go out and actually uh, quality control what the caregiver is doing. Um, we go out and we meet the client and their family in their home to make sure that 
the home is safe. So we do a little bit of an audit on the home to make sure that the the, the, the room is safe for for the adult. Um, and then there's constant monitoring of the caregiver as well. So there's a full office backup. Um, like most offices would employ somewhere between maybe 10 and 15 people back in the office. And that's everything from, you know, recruitment uh, to, you know, managing the caregiver's quality control, um, answering the phone, meeting the families, networking, the, the medical backup with the nurse, etc. It's a sector that, you know, for someone such as yourself who was uninitiated in it at the beginning, it, it strikes me that it must be quite tricky because, you know, caring for older people in their mm. latter years uh, is, is, you know, it, it, the, you must hear some, you know, incredibly happy stories about yes. the impact of, of what your, your people do, but also some very sad mm. stories about, mm. you know, where perhaps mm. you just can't help or... It's it's you come across incredibly sad cases without a shadow of a doubt because you're you're dealing with the most vulnerable people in society. You're dealing with older people, um, but it's extraordinary when you can actually. It's extraordinary how you can look after somebody living at home by just giving them maybe two or three hours help a day. They don't need full time uh, care in a nursing home, and they don't need full time care at home. So if we go in in the morning, we'll help them get get out of bed. We'll make them their breakfast we might make their bed tidy up the house and then we might go back that evening and give them an evening meal medication reminders all of that type of stuff so they don't need a lot of help and we have actually gone into houses with older people and we have seen their their quality of life improve dramatically and also the quality of their uh, their family's life because it can be very very trying and very very onerous on the family to be looking after their older parents because they may have to work they may have children of their own so we, we, we fulfil almost a dual role where we're looking after the older people but we're also looking after their families and giving them the, the respite and the, the help that they need as well. You point out you know we do have a, an ageing population and, and, it's, and it's a good thing sometimes it's talked about in very negative terms isn't mm. it but it's wonderful that medical science has helped us all live longer and, and, and healthier lives into our latter years. Mm. Um, how much is, uh, you know, has uh, Home Instead uh, grown since you, since you brought it here? Mm-hmm. And, and, and how much potential, I suppose, for growth do you see it uh, having in, well, in the future? Well, obviously we started off from scratch about uh, 12, 12 and a half years ago, so it's not a long time to be in business. And from the time we opened up the first uh, office, we now have 24 offices around the country, which means that we cover uh, we cover every uh, what's called uh, LHO, local health area uh, within the country. OK, so every HSC area within the country is covered by a home instead office. Uh, we're, uh, we're an approved supplier to the HSE who actually give, uh, you know, about the vast majority of our business actually comes from home instead and then the rest comes from private clients and maybe some disability clients as well. So we've gone from zero to to 24 offices nationwide and revenues this year will be somewhere in the region of about 70 million euro. So it's become a very I suppose substantial business. Uh, we employ about four and a half thousand caregivers on a daily basis. Uh, we've got about another 300 people that work throughout the offices throughout the country. Um, so it's a it's a massive it's a massive employer em, employer as well as as everything else. Uh, but we're constantly looking for new caregivers because the demand is actually the demand is is exceeding supply and uh, I think that's going to be the case over the next number of years Is it hard to find good caregivers? It's 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 challenging it is challenging um and why that is, I suppose, the fact that, you know, three, four years ago when we were in the midst of the economic crisis, unemployment was up around the 15, 16 percent. 
uh, companies weren't bringing on new people and now it's completely the opposite. Unemployment is down, I think, at as low as about 5.3 or 5.4%. Uh, I was reading yesterday where there's restaurants down the country and they just cannot get staff. They can't. They have to close because they cannot get staff. So there is a major staff shortage, not just in the uh, the caregiving area, but also, I think, in other areas as well. So we have to be very... Um, I think supportive of the caregivers that we have we have to obviously look after them well pay them well and make sure that they're being really well looked after so that we can hold on to what we have and then recruit new caregivers as we go along And what kind of traits do you need to find in them? Empathy I think it's a huge one. Uh, I think um, a desire to work with older people. I mean, that's one of the questions, the first questions we ask, do you like working with older people? Because if you've got somebody who does not like working with older people, well, then they're not going to be very good at the job. So uh, I think empathy and then a real need to work with older people are the two key traits I would I would look for. I mean, as a society, we're often, and not just Ireland, but other mm. societies too, are often a, a kind of accused of, of, of ignoring our older folks or not taking mm. care of them in, in, in the way that we should. Um, I mean, I, I wonder if... If, um, if you think we're we're changing, or if we're becoming better at being friendlier to our um, our you know, the, the older among us, I, I probably wouldn't agree with you that we haven't been friendly to our older people. Uh, I think that there's a massive respect for older people. I think that they contribute massively to society. I mean, even I think. Um, as grandparents looking after grandchildren even you just take that that one aspect of it it's happening right through, throughout Ireland the cost of childcare has gone through the roofs so and our grandparents are paying, playing a far bigger role in um, looking after their, their grandchildren um, I think that there's a massive role for older people in looking after older people and I think that's a market that, that we would like to I suppose expand in terms of our caregivers like you see people and they're retiring now, retiring now 65, 66 years of age but actually uh, they could still work for another 10, 12, 14 years so we've actually got some caregivers that are well into their 70s and some that are even <coughs> into their 80s uh, my own mum is 87 years of age and, and she goes and she visits a couple of people in hospital every week and that's a, that's a form of caregiving mm. so uh, there is an untapped market there and obviously um, it would also help financially you know for older people if they can go out and they can earn maybe a couple of hundred euros a week by, by doing you know seven or eight hours work I so. suppose I, I was talking about this kind of concept of, of, of loneliness because I mean while there will mm. be some people out there blessed with big families who will always bring mm. them in but not everyone has a, has a family and, and, and right. people kind of just knocking mm. in on elderly neighbours yeah, I mean, it's something, again, that should be massively encouraged, I think. Uh, loneliness is probably the biggest single challenge because I think when people are lonely, they stop eating, they stop eating well, they don't go outside, they don't... And it's just, it's a really difficult situation, I think. And if loneliness could be, I suppose, brought to the uh, the forefront of people's minds and actually, you know, think about a neighbour down the road, she's living on her own, she is lonely, I can promise you she's lonely. And just call in and say, listen, would you like a cup of tea or would you like to come up to me for a cup of tea? I think it would make a massive difference. Yeah. I really do. So listen, have, you were saying there, 12 years um, Home Instead has been operational in, in mm. this country. Um, have you still got your kind of hands on the, on the steering wheel or have you kind of, are you in the back seat now? <coughs> I'm, I'm, in the, I'm pretty well in the back seat. Uh, <laughs> like it's quite funny, uh, uh, like when I got involved with the rugby, like I did two years with the Irish Under-20 team first and then five years with the senior team. And that gave me the opportunity to kind of duck and dive because nobody knew where I was half the time. And I've never really got back into it on a, on a full time basis. Uh, been on the board of directors, and I've I've I've, I've worked on certain uh, projects as well, <coughs> similar with Snap. Been on the board of directors there. We still have a, a, a decent shareholding in Snap. 
Um, but I'd say I'm 63 now and, and I, I kind of I justify my, my lifestyle at the moment by saying that I, I probably started to work when I was about 10 or 11 years of age running around after cattle on the farm and, 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 and doing the, the chores that, that, that kids do on farms uh, so I don't feel guilty to be quite honest with you I'm 63 next birthday uh, I've got a very nice house in La Hinch I like to play golf I like to go away on holidays I like to so I think you need stimulation and you need a sense of purpose uh, I'm still involved a little bit in the rugby and that I'm on the national game board and I'm, I'm obviously involved in Lansdowne as well so I've lots of interests I've, I've kids that are involved in restaurants so I, I don't think I'm, I'm a person that will never actually be, be kind of fully retired but at the moment, I'm kind of I'm, I'm heading that way very quickly. No, no, and I, I don't. Yeah. I don't think anyone's trying to make you feel that way. But but it's interesting you touch uh, on that, especially mm. in the world of enterprise. Mm. There's this kind of sense. You know, lots of the entrepreneurs that we come and talk to here, they they never want to stop. They're just yeah. going to keep going and going and going. Whereas yeah. a lot of people out there, I'm mm. sure a lot in our audience, would yeah. be like, you know, well, actually, I'm quite looking forward to to, to mm. chilling out once yeah, I've kind yeah. of earned my bit. Well, it's it's. I think it's interesting when you look at the 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 age kind of thing as well, right? So. So if I left school at 18, I started work straight away. So I worked with my dad for six years. Then I went to Australia for two years. Then I came back with a master franchise for Snap. And I was, I would think I was only 27 years of age. So like I was really, really young at the time. And I kind of, I worked, I, like I literally worked 16, 17 hours a day for a long, long time after I came back from Australia. So some entrepreneurs don't get into, don't become entrepreneurs until they're mid-40s. So I came an entrepreneur at mid-20s. So I'm 20 years ahead of the curve, if you know what I mean. So... Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think my wife would forgive me if I got back into another business, to be honest <laughs> with you. So I'm, I'm very happy where I am in life. Uh, I'm kind of looking forward to having my kids get ahead and I say they're interested in, in, in different things as well. And I do a fair bit of mentoring with, with ex-rugby players, current rugby players, uh, other people. I'm very interested in, in that part of of. of, of uh, of of just helping others, you know, it's it's a big it's a big thing in my own mind. That's just you know to to use my experience, I suppose, to to guide them as yeah. best I can. The sixteen hour days, obviously, no longer part of your of your of your mm. presence. But I mean, no. do you have any any regrets about them, or is it just a necessary part of what you were doing at the time? Uh, I have no regrets. Um, like I, I consider, you know, people ask me who who do I admire, right? And like Paddy Thompson to me would be absolutely the the person I would admire most because Paddy gave me a chance at a very young age and he didn't have to, and I think that was extraordinary. So to get that lucky break, I think really kind of changed my whole life for the next forty or fifty years. Um, if I hadn't met Paddy, I don't know where where what I, direction w- where I would have been and. Um, I think that's kind of interesting because people emigrate some people emigrate by choice and some people emigrate because they have to emigrate and I was one of those people that was somewhere in between I kind of felt that the, my future back in, in, in the farm is obviously gone it was over um, so what was I going to do so I, I didn't really emigrate by choice and people that don't that emigrate by don't emigrate by choice go away with the, always with the view of coming back and I think the vast majority never come back because they don't have the opportunity to come back. So I would consider myself extremely lucky that I had the opportunity to come back after going away. Mm. So listen, in all the mentoring that you Mm. you do with um, rugby players and and, and perhaps also through uh, the Entrepreneur of the Year programme, you know, what what are your kind of golden rules? And and is is chilling out actually one of them? I think work-life balance is probably one of them. But, you know, if, if, if you're a young fella and you've got three kids and you've got a mortgage, chilling out is not top of your agenda 
top of your agenda there is going to be try and make money uh, and get ahead and, and, and make ends meet um, what I what I would do as, as a mentor I would try and get them to come up with their own thoughts on things and then try and guide them if, if they're right or wrong um, I get them to set uh, set kind of goals over the next three months so if, if I mentor say seven or eight people I'd meet them every three months religiously and then I'd get them to set goals and targets for themselves within that three months then I would review them and then get them to set them again and if I could make introductions, uh, I'd make introductions. I mean, I think being part of the EY alumni is one of the great things I have because not only for myself, because I, I really enjoy meeting the people and fellow entrepreneurs, but also being able to put, say, a rugby player in contact with, you know, any one of maybe 170 or 80 entrepreneurs. I'd be pretty sure that if a player is an interest in, 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 in this industry, I would be able to tap into one of the entrepreneurs of the year finalists to actually put them in touch with that. And that's a fantastic thing to do as well. So I would genuinely try and help them and, and avoid, I suppose, help them avoid falling into deep holes because I've, I've seen guys come to me with the most harebrained ideas and I've just had to say to them, no, no, don't do that. Right. <laughs> and they really appreciate that advice, you know. So you, you try and, I suppose, use use your experience, good, bad and indifferent, to, to uh, help them along. They might not be listening. What was the worst idea someone came to you with? Oh, God. That's a very good question. And I probably couldn't say it without maybe half identifying. <laughs> All right, we'll person. let you away with it. Let me away without that one. Mick Carney, thank you yeah. very much. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you, Tag. Nice to speak to you too. Thanks for joining us today on The Architects of Business. Thanks to our guest, Mick Carney, our producer, Patrick Hohey, and all of the team here at Joe. Our programme is made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Go to eoy.ie to learn more about the finalists for this year. And don't miss out on past or future editions of The Architects of Business by subscribing for free on iTunes, on your favourite Android podcast app, or you can watch the show on YouTube too. While you're at it, check out some of Joe's other podcasts, including Ireland Unfiltered, and House of Rugby. I'm Ty Genreich. Thanks for being with us today and I hope to see you again soon. Bye-bye. The Architects of Business on Joe in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland.